you know, it, it, you learn sometimes more from, from the things that don't go the way you think they're going to go than it seems too easy when you buy a piece of property for a dollar and sell it for 10. You feel like you're a genius and don't get sucked into that trap. Every property is unique. Location, 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 of course, is the moniker of real estate, but there are other variables too. What I'm taking away from today is yeah. cash flow. Yes. Know your cash flow. I like that one. Know your area. Yes. Um, don't be afraid to make a mistake and learn from it. Yes. And, and, and basically, with those principles, you can do anything in real estate. I think so. Welcome. Welcome to The Remix, the video podcast that keeps you in the mix of everything real estate. I'm Noelle Fryson. And I'm Eric Anderson. And we are so excited today because I get to bring a guest to you who's one of my personal, personal friends. Oh, and God, that scares me. <laughs> I have a lot of really cool friends. But so this personal friend of mine is, is amazing. And he's going to teach us and just give us his stories today about how to use real estate principles as a springboard to other investments. So, Noelle, introduce our guest. Or can I do it this time? You do it. All right. Fred Schneiderman, welcome. Well, absolute pleasure to be here, Noelle, and to Eric. I want to congratulate you on your successful podcast. Um, I've been following it myself. It's tremendous. It's an honor to be here today. And I look forward to sharing my personal story with everybody that's interested and, and so forth. So with no further ado, please, um, <laughs> let's let's get started. And, awesome. Uh, so why don't we start? So we know that you started real estate back in like the 90s, right? In the early 90s. I'm actually from Bergen County. Well, I went to high school in Bergen County, lived just north of Bergen County. So I'm a, a New Jersey through and through, which which it's just phenomenal to be here with, with family and back from Houston. Lived in Texas uh, as I moved to Texas in the late 80s, early 90s. And I say that because I started going and previewing Houston, Texas in particular mm -hmm. in 1989 and then eventually moved there in 1990. What was happening in 1990 in Houston, there were two different segments of, of, uh, of the economy, and that is oil and gas, and that bled into, as the prices were rising, an enormous amount of real estate being built in a very short period of time from 1980 to 1990, and in addition to the Texas Medical Center. Oil and gas went down to $8, $10 a barrel. It was uneconomical. And so by and large, most people had to sign personally on notes on whether it was a commercial property, apartment complex, an office building, or a single family home. And the foreclosure rate was incredible. The default rate was incredible. And really at that period of time, the properties were in one of three categories. They were either in foreclosure, real estate, or bankruptcy. And the bankruptcy was really used as a tool in some cases just to prolong to see if they can get the market to come back. And my brother-in-law, as a CPA in New York, happened to have had a client in Houston, an oil and gas client, and was coming back and describing the situation in Texas, in Houston in particular, and, and describing that the town is in disarray and the price of real estate is maladjusted to other major markets and there's some incredible opportunity. So hold on, so you were here. I was. Your brother-in-law was in Texas. Uh, he No, he had a client in Texas. He had a client in Texas yes. who is basically watching all of the, the economy in the 90s and, and everybody's getting ready for the SNL In the 80s, or? right? Well, in without 80s. disclosing, he was going through the books of his clients and kind of <laughs> realized kind of realized where the economy was going and, okay. and how successful they had been with great oil prices. But so what happened was what Houston did is to try to salvage the SNL crisis, which a lot of people are familiar with back in the late savings 80s. Savings and loans. So savings the bank savings and loans, right? And, and we've heard about different banks' failures throughout the years. But they tried different programs, and they tried what was called conservatorship, receivership, which were all different uh, ways and all culminated into two different programs, one called the Southwest Plan, which was um, a, divested, a divestiture initiative put on by George Bush 4041. And that was to try to help spur the growth and the disposition of the assets. It wasn't happening nearly as quickly. And the management companies were really handing bills to the to the US government. 
and they were actually getting lambasted. In about 1990, they formed something called the RTC, which is an acronym, acronym for Resolution Trust Corporation. And it was run by a guy, government agency, run by a guy named Bill Seidman, very bright guy. Mm -hmm. um, and their mandate was disposition of all the real estate, which encompassed every property that I'd mentioned, whether it's single family house, whether it was a, a tenant, whether it was a Walgreen, and, and a triple And these were tenant. all real estate properties that were in all some, real estate all in trouble. They all were not paying their loans? Every, um, with the exception of an anomaly, with one anomaly where there was a family that just had all cash into a piece of property, every property was underwater. Wow. And every property okay. was in litigation because partners were fighting and pointing fingers. So that kind of delayed the process. They were using the bankruptcy uh, protection and, and because they signed more or less um, nine times out of 10, if not 99 out of 100, they signed personally. Uh, and then of course the rest were, was for, set, for sale. The interesting, the most interesting thing that I expressed to people, their mandate was to sell the properties such that they can get it off the books and if they even if they had a down payment and they got and, and sometimes it was a modicum amount very small amount of down payment but their interest was getting it off the books so the government didn't have to carry carry the real estate and worry about upkeep of the real estate and paying more money than they should if an entrepreneur and if they had to take the property back because so they was, wanted to get rid of these properties absolutely. they wanted you to become the real estate entrepreneur that you are today they did but they did put on <laughs> i'll tell you the restrictions so it was very unrestricted i was a young guy mm -hmm. and it was very very restricted in the sense that the caveat was if you defaulted on any property, you were precluded from participation because now the banks okay. were putting, depending on the property and what you can negotiate, five, 10, 15, 20% down payment, absolutely non-recourse. Non-recourse meaning that if you had a default after you purchased the property, they couldn't come after you after the loan balance, after the entirety. You would lose your property, you would lose your equity investment, but there was no, uh, if you signed a note for, Whatever amount, whether it's five million, five hundred thousand, or fifty million, you wouldn't be responsible. That's where the difference was with the RTC and how aggressive they got. So, how did the RTC get the properties? So, the RTC they folded the SNLs into okay. the RTC by government mandate, and they said, "Look, let's go to the entrepreneurs." Or a lot of folks coming from Canada. There was uh, a hold strong. On, hold on. So, the banks, which are the SNLs, were failing. Yes. And the RTC was created to take all of their loans. Into one right, that, that was my question. The, so they were basically taking the loans from the bank. Yes, but the precursor okay. to that was the Southwest plan, which already basically consolidated a lot of those properties. Okay. And then because the Southwest plan had a particular, what the, the Southwest plan was doing is they were allowing entrepreneurs to come in at the face value of the note, buy at a discount, mm -hmm. and yet they would guarantee them a return on the face value. The, the most successful entrepreneur that had done this and made an incredible amount of money was Ron Perlman, a very uh, well-known entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, Revlon, My right? wife worked for Revlon. Okay, so, <laughs> so um, and my wife buys the products from Revlon, so, you know. And I have on Revlon, uh, go ahead. But so, so it was a really interesting time, and, and you had players that were extraordinarily talented, very smart, that built the city up in a very short period of time, um, and all of a sudden they were underwater and they couldn't play in their own market. Okay. And okay. so that was really the impetus. I went down and... And this was just Texas at the time, even though for, the whole country me, had issues, but you the, were... The most devastated portion, it was the Southwest, Louisiana, Louisiana got hit pretty hard, okay. but the prices never elevated to where they elevated in Houston. Okay. Dallas, right. Dallas got hit hard as well. Um, no, wait, were you still in Bergen County at that point or had you moved? I to went back and forth at an apartment in New York. And then when that apartment, when that lease lapsed, I gave up that apartment because it wasn't cost effective. I and think, I moved to I Houston. think this is important to say that you saw opportunity somewhere that wasn't local to you and decided to take that opportunity, even though you couldn't just get in your car and drive there. Well, I'm going to respond to that in a couple of ways. Um, number one, I was young. Right, so I so didn't have could, so right. I didn't have a wife and kids at the time, um, and when you when you take a risk when you're going to a new environment and you understand, I, I did a few trips. I had a few trips that enabled me to have the confidence to say, look, this is sensible for me to take the opportunity. When you fall off when you're younger, you fall off a curb. 
it's a whole lot easier than falling out of eight-story building. We okay? talk about that all the time. So what made this really unique was I'm sitting there and I'm having access to major CEOs that have run REITs, that have built a lot of property, um, and I had accessibility. Nobody in Houston had any money, or very few and far between. There were people, obviously, and that's an overstatement. I mean, there were people in a few and far between that were money management that were doing well, but the real estate and the oil and gas people, which was really the cornerstone of the of the economy, were really in, in a lot of trouble. I'll share a quick anecdotal story, mm -hmm. if, if, if I may. Sure. So I'm a, um, I may have been 23 at the time, and I'm at, and Houston's fairly small, even though it's a large city with a big population. It's really um, misleading in, in the sense that a lot of the entrepreneurs and a lot of the oil and gas executives, the C-suite executives, live in a, in a in certain designated area, which really brings New York, or I'm sorry, brings Houston to much smaller because it's a huge city with, from end to end. It really is. Um, and they annex land in every year to make, make it even larger. Mm. But I'm a young guy, and there was several restaurants in our neighborhood. And wait, so Houston annexes land from other areas? Well, well, that's and they'll adjacent. be like, the yeah, land. and they'll yeah. be like, you weren't Houston before, but now you're Houston. But they cut a deal. Houston is gangsta. I love it. They, they, they. <laughs> but they're they like, do, you're they now do. part of us. Listen, the folks that got annexed in, you know, uh -huh. through the years. They cut them a deal where they get better services. Yeah, fire protection, no, that makes ambulance. Sense. It makes sense. They get where, so it's got to be. At, at, I'm not sure it was always like that. They got pretty wise to it pretty quickly. Okay, that was all right. So without getting into the weeds on that, sure. yeah. But but I, I'd love to tell this story because it encapsulates really the mentality of Houston. And I'm at a restaurant with a fairly well known, locally fairly well known uh, entrepreneur, real estate. Um, he was an apartment developer. And I was all excited because across the way, there was another CEO, and I was a young guy, and I knew the other CEO. And I was all excited. I knew somebody else in Houston, right? My peer group, a lot of them were still in B school or law school or what have mm -hmm. you. And I said, I started talking, and I, and I enjoyed that other gentleman. I enjoyed his company and the time that we had spent together. Got a lot of education at a young age talking to older folks. And don't ever mitigate, if you have the, if you have the opportunity to talk to professionals that are older, that have been through mm -hmm. it, that have been through the cycles. I, I would, that's one of the, the premier lessons that people should learn. Agreed. Take that opportunity and listen and learn. If you think you put in $10 and got out 100 and you don't need to speak to anybody else, I promise you, you haven't been through a cycle. Take the opportunity that's given to you, and those people are really smart. Mm -hmm. The gray hair people, they're not, they're not people that, hey, they're over the hill, they don't know what's going on. Although history it, repeats. Admittedly, my, my nine-year-old, as you know, you've met my nine-year-old. Every time I have a problem, an issue with my iPhone, I have to call her in to fix it. <laughs> yes. And she goes like this and it's fixed. So that kind of keeps me in check at home. But let me share this story. So I see this other gentleman across the way because it really does encapsulate where Houston was at. And he said, and he didn't mean anything disparaging by it, but, but it resonated to this day. He said, yeah, I said, I like that guy. And uh, I re don't recall his name at the moment. Um, and if I did, it's probably not appropriate to suggest. But, and he said, well, you really kind of want to stay away from that guy. He's not really a big player. You know, he talks a lot. He's not a big player. Mm. And he just filed for an $80 million bankruptcy. Nice. Oh. Right? So I said, you know, I said, okay. That's um, some insight. Um, that's some insight. But this is one of the first real understandings I had of the plight where they were in real estate. And he said, look, he had an $80 million bankruptcy. My bankruptcy was 250 million. <laughs> That's an absolute true story. And it really does, and so he said, you don't want to deal with him. He could only borrow 80 million. Uh, I borrowed a quarter of a billion. You want to hang with me? Right. Oh, wow. So my loss was bigger, but I have, I have, I have bigger so, strings, right? But there was no shame because everybody was in the same okay. boat. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, Houston, and and we could talk about real estate in general, but Houston in particular then started to, to diversify. Mm -hmm. Austin, of course, had Dell computers. Mm -hmm. A lot of the uh, co computer companies um, that were coming from Silicon Valley ended up coming to Houston. Dell was there, and some of their suppliers in Houston. We happened to have had one of the fastest five at the time. It was, I believe, the fastest five hundred uh, company from zero inception. I think it was three years, inception to Fortune 500, which was compact 
compact computers, sure. which is now mm -hmm. Hewlett Packard. Mm -hmm. And so that was really a new industry, and it was like kind of the light at the end of the tunnel. So that, that because of, of the tax structure, the entrepreneurial aspect of it, and so forth, that gave people hope that there was other economies. So besides is that what brought the, the values of the homes back up at the time when all these other companies started coming into the area? I wouldn't say so because and where they people. where they were located were really on the outskirts mm -hmm. and it was a habit trail, so one building and then they added as a habit but trail. But they were bringing, the I'm assuming they're bringing more people into more the jobs. area, they, feet to the street, more the people three, to buy consumer goods. They, they were, but the three people that actually, Rod Canyon and two partners, came from Texas Instruments was also mm -hmm. located in Houston. So I'm not sure a lot. I think they took some people that weren't under contract from from Texas Instruments and people. So they were in that market anyway. But then you know, with with Dell and Austin and and Silicon Valley and so forth, going through this is pre-internet going into the mm -hmm. internet. So but, you so you yeah. got you went there. You started buying. You were buying up the properties. Or what was your yeah? Role so with that? so I bought up. Um, you know, it's it's funny because you go through through school. I, I studied finance. And you know, one of the, one of the criteria I had in my mind, it has to be income producing. It has to have a positive cash flow, and you know, it depends how your purview on the market, and it depends on what you think you can do. And there were deals, quite frankly, that were really uh, twenty cents on the dollar and, and wow. thirty cents on replacement dollar. Right? I mean, you could wait. What's a replacement dollar? Meaning, if you rebuilt it, it cost you. It you you buy you're buying it for 30, 30 cents of what it would cost you to rebuild the same project. Okay. So, wow, that's but okay. that that doesn't mean that's where the market is. <laughs> like, yeah. It yeah. it really doesn't. So it's a little bit misleading. Just because you're buying something thirty cents on the dollar, that doesn't mean that the market isn't twenty five cents of the dollar. Good point. So so what I try to do is say, look, and I gave up some opportunity on properties that had great capital appreciation but didn't have the cash flow, and I was more concerned. Um, with positive cash flow and apartments. Apartments were really where I started. Why? Because I knew people needed a place to live. I knew if I had to roll up my sleeves and go to every, I was a kid, I was young. If I had to go to every shopping center, back then there was Walmart, there was Costco, there was, uh, there was uh, Sam's Club, which eventually came to, to up, up throughout the country in New York area. But back then it was really mm -hmm. Texas-based mm -hmm. or Arkansas-based, but a lot of uh, uh, stores in Texas. That being said, I knew I could fill up the, if I bought it 90, 85% occupancy, the ones brokers used to love to show me. Here's a, another great anecdotal concept. When the brokers go show you the properties that are really pristine, it very well could be a good deal and you may be able to strike an opportunity um, with a great price. But I used to tell the brokers, and believe me, in, in 103 degree heat, eight hours in a car in Houston, is an, you know, I'm glad I was younger when I did it. But I say, show me the ones with the Coke cans on the floor, mm -hmm. the ones where the shutters are kind of tilted, where it needs a paint job on the door, because those are things that you can easily correct and then increase your rent, whether it's five cents, 10, 15 cents on the dollar. Not right? to cut, not, not to stop you, and I want you to finish your story, sure. but I want to bring this to everyone's attention. How many times has Eric talked mm -hmm. about finding places that add that you can do add value to, right? We just did a whole thing on add value, and that's exactly what Fred is talking about. He wanted to find the places that he can add value to, fix the shutters, you know, paint the walls, but then, the the value goes up, Pick up the, the value Coke to can. you there we go you have to the most successful people that i've met and to your point noel and eric are the other ones that say listen i'm willing to roll up my sleeves mm -hmm. i'm willing to do what it takes the residential component i always knew that people needed a place to live so i would you know just like full employment's 96 percent with move in move out in in apartments it's usually about 94 5% plus or minus, right? Because mm -hmm. you're never going to have somebody move out on a Tuesday and they move in on a Wednesday. Right. Sure. You need to do a make ready. But but one of the lessons that I learned is, look, I know it, whether it's Saturday morning, Sunday morning, I'll pick up the Coke cans myself mm -hmm. or we'll get somebody to do it. Um, labor was fairly cheap because the economy was so terrible. Mm -hmm. But go to the ones where you could actually add value and you could see it's a great neighborhood. The hedges aren't trimmed. And that could be a function of the government didn't pay the check or the management company spent the check but didn't yet didn't the trim line. the hedges. And I'm not, you know, casting aspersions on any particular group. I'm just giving you my purview, my personal experience. I was fortunate enough that um, one of 
uh, one of my first forays, it wasn't my first one, where I had ended up with a contract and it was a, a standard contract for a commercial uh, building. It was residential, but it was, it was a pretty large building and it took a, a, not a lot of money for down payment. And the addendum, the last piece of paper to the contract was instead of a 30-day feasibility and a 30-day close, the 30-day feasibility didn't commence until everything on the addendum was provided. As it happened, in my personal case, the SNL was out of Florida and they were in disarray and it took them about nine months for them to get all the re requisite material in order to start the clock. So you were under contract for nine months. Wow. In the process, so this is where the story comes in, and energy as well, right? So what happened in that nine months, there was one REIT that came out from, from Australia, and they were buying up properties that fit the profile of the property I had under contract. And we ended up selling. We um, a flip coming. So we ended up selling the contract. We actually closed with their money. Okay. Ah. And we took the leftover <laughs> proceeds. And I, I was young, and I said, wow. It was right four days before, I think, my 24th, 23rd birthday. And I said, wow, this is easy. I'll, you know, I'll make tons of money by the time I'm 30. And I'm here to say, look, it's never easy. It's never easy. It takes a lot of hard work. And if you have the the perception that every deal is going to turn a dollar into 10. That's not, that's not the way to approach it. But what you want to do is mitigate the upfront risks. You want to take away from the equation the things that you can take away. And you want to say, okay, if this property doesn't come to fruition or pro forma like we think it can, mm -hmm. you know, what can I do to, it's in a great location, what can I do to mitigate the loss? Or the, a profit that maybe is a modicum return. Right, it's not the sure. not the anticipated. So that's how I got started with that flip. It was 1991. The Gulf War was up in New York, and um, New York was going through a tough time in 1991. And Houston seemed like it was. I had better accessibility, and there was no shortage of properties. Um, and I determined, okay, let me give up my apartment in New York. It's cost effective to stay at a friend's or uh, a hotel when I came up, and let me spend the time in Houston. And so that was really the impetus behind my real estate. And I've used certain principles from that experience uh, all through today. And I see different, different real estate. Now, we're not in a period of time that, we, that Houston went through. I'm not sure we'll ever see that. There's an argument to be made in 2008, 2009. There was so much opportunity sure. and so forth. That may happen again with commercial properties based on that there's a new paradigm. And we really were kind of understanding as we go with how that's going to impact commercial property, major commercial properties in major urban cities. Well, the, the rising interest rates of today. And do you see well, similar yes. signs of where we're going today compared to what you experienced in, in 91 and what you saw in 08? Do you think that that's coming here? I think I think it is. I, I think it is to an extent. The I think the major differentiator is that New York City per se in the metro area is Gotham and it attracts investment, pension funds, private equity from all over the world. It really does. It's a safe haven and people feel like over the long term, if you're a long term player, a pension fund, teachers, CalPERS, whatever it may be, that they'll sustain their, their IRR and they'll do fine. New York has a lot more going for it than just one, you know, the catalyst in, in Houston was energy, of course. New York has everything from the financial everything. markets to the museums to, I, I couldn't even list, you can't even list it. So New York is kind of an anomaly. So is LA, Chicago. They have different things that they can offer that Houston was not. So do I think there's a big potential for opportunity and big potential for a down, downturn? Absolutely. Will it occur to the extent where, you know, for a modicum amount of money, a small amount of down payment, you could tie a property. I'm not sure we're gonna get there, but I do know law firms that had eight floors, 10 floors, mm -hmm. now consolidating to four, yeah, everybody's you know, and five. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, the residential market seems like, from what I'm reading, is coming back a little bit stronger. Mm -hmm. So that's a very encouraging sign. But look, over time, New York is a very special place. New and when I say New York, I mean the metro area. Um, it's a special place with special opportunity, but I do think the interest rates, what I'm most concerned about, as you bring it up, Eric, um, it's, it's absolutely a great point. Nobody really knows. I don't think Powell 
and, and we're talking about the Fed chairman, will come down to the 2% inflation rate. I think there'll be too much pressure. We're still at 6 plus sure. percent. Mm -hmm. And they're still rising, the interest rates, instead of going 50 or 75, I think the consensus is 50 is the high side, 25 at the next meeting, which is in the end of February. But that impacts everything. And here's the reason why, is because, and I once shared a story with you, I don't know if you recall it at dinner, but a lot of the notes that the banks, they're 30-year amortization, right? And there's a seven-year balloon. And a lot of these folks that, that engaged with financing that were, was very attractive um, signed up with a seven-year balloon, even if it's a 10-year balloon. And some, some of those loans are coming due, which is going to require a workout. And it's predicated on, and people knew that, landlords knew that, but over the course of history, the rents have always risen. Mm -hmm. If you took in the long haul, rents always go up. But we may. Who knows what we're in? A, again, we're in a new paradigm now. Post COVID, people want to work from home. Some companies are incentivizing people from mm -hmm. working from home. Certainly, Silicon Valley is, and they're giving them a bonus not to come in. Um, so we don't know yet exactly how that's going to impact. We do know there's going to be opportunity. Yeah. How abundant it's going to be and how, right. and again, New York is a much more competitive market and not to underscore what I said before, but when I was in Houston, the Houston players couldn't play in their own market. And there are enough private equity groups that are very, very well funded. And of course they're in 15 verticals and are flush with, with cash. And they're in a great position to take advantage of that. So I'm not sure we'll see the same kind of discount, but there are some opportunities for every level of investor. So one of the things you mentioned earlier was how important cash flow was to you. Mm -hmm. It was. So it seems like that would be, and I believe cash flow is, is extremely important because that's what you build your your day-to-day -day on. So where, where do you see that cash flow coming into play with the interest rates? Well, you know, there, here, here's where I would come out. It, there's, there's a couple of different variables, right? Are they able to maintain the occupancy that they already had? Um, are TI dollars increasing or decreasing? I don't have that data mm -hmm. yet. I think that's, I don't know if anybody has perfect data because one or two buildings wouldn't really be a good case True. study, right? Um, and whether or not the landlords are gonna be able to raise rates. We have a couple new buildings on Park Avenue that are coming online, one Vanderbilt got 200 before COVID, $225, I believe, for, for a lease, which is crazy. It used to be Nine West. If you're familiar with the glass building on 57th Street, that looks like it was built two years ago. It was actually built in 1973. Hmm. And it looks as new as if it was just completed, if you know what I'm talking about, that Maybe. building. Uh, very much like the WR Grace building, which some people, Brian Park, may be familiar with. So I think the variables of the interest rate are going to impact how much they can increase rent, how much they're losing, and how much their lenders recognize, look, this is by virtue of circumstances. We've seen a pandemic. This was unforeseen. Um, some, some are going to want their money for whatever reason because they have to be solvent and they have a fiduciary to their own shareholders and their balance sheet may not be as strong. Or conversely, they may be engaged with a partner or a private equity group that will cut into their equity and they can wait out in a long-term capacity. Ama amazing, all of the unsureties that are coming down the pike. So just to, to, to change direction here. Wait, sure. before you um, change direction, mm. I have to remind everyone, subscribe, 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 <laughs> mash that button right there. Go to us on Spotify, go to us on YouTube, go to <clears> us <throat> on Google Podcasts, go to us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast experience. There you go. Now you can. Okay. Let's so, transition. Yes. <laughs> How, so I, I just because I know so much yes, about you. Yeah, yes. One of the things that you've done in in Texas has really fascinated me, and and I've known about you know everyone has a piece of dirt right, and there's above the dirt, there's below the dirt, there's houses, there's what's underneath the dirt. So how did you learn about what's underneath the dirt, and then how did you make money off that, and how did that? And I find like, what this is it? Fascinating. Well, so, it, it, so I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna simplify it to suggest that yeah. look, if you're in Los Angeles, it's just a matter, and you're an entrepreneur, it's not gonna take long before somebody approaches you with a script or with their wheelhouses, right? In LA, in Texas, it's oil and gas, it's energy, right? And gas meaning natural gas. It wasn't long before I was approached with through family friends, um, a, a friend that I had met there and their family. Um, and they were in the oil and gas business and they introduced me to a few folks 
that had producing properties. So you can drill and with less scientific data than you have today, or you can buy a producing property, which would be akin in producing real estate. Producing meaning what? So, okay, so in, a, in real estate, you could be a developer and hope mm -hmm. to fill up the building, mm -hmm. and you're, you're buying it, at, you're actually building it, and you're, you're probably your cap rate will be better if you build it from scratch, mm -hmm. and you can lease it up in a timely fashion, or you buy the cash flow because it's already cash flowing. It's already drilled, and they package it up, and the majors want to get rid of some of the smaller properties. Right, so tell, tell us what drilling is. You're saying drilling. We're not, we don't know what it is yet. When you drill, you... you what are we drilling for? What yeah, are so you're drilling for hydrocarbon. Hydrocarbon being mostly so we're oil. talking Dallas, right? Like remember, no, Houston, no, Houston. no, 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 I know yeah, 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 not yeah, Dallas, yeah. Texas, yes. but Dallas, the old. She's, yeah. thinking, uh, she's thinking like the soap soap opera, opera. <laughs> exactly. Um, you, it's, Dallas, where they pretty, drilled. It's pretty for close. Oil. It's pretty close. Yeah. You, you get some real characters, <laughs> right? You get you get some real characters. Um, Is that like who shot Jr. Yeah, who Jr. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. In the oil and gas business, maybe you know who buried whom. I don't know, but that I'm kidding, of course, with that, but. In, in, in that no, but in that <laughs> respect, um, it, there is a correlation with real estate um, and and oil and gas. And what happens with real estate? If someone has to own that land that you're drilling on and what's underneath it. Yes, okay. a lot of a lot of the oil and gas drilling happens to be in very rural areas, mm -hmm. um, and that's the easiest way. They have seismic, seismic. They run seismic, which gives them alpha waves. It helps them determine where the best probability of finding oil and gas. But the landowner, whether it be usually a farmer or the state or what have you, they go to the farmer in the state and they actually lease. They get a certain amount of money up front and they actually, the people that lease, whether it's a major company or a major entrepreneur, they actually do not own the land. They only lease the mineral rights and sometimes they're depth severances. So they only may lease to 7,000 feet or 10,000 feet or what have you. And so the uh, the landowner at that point would get a royalty, uh -huh. whatever he would negotiate. There's a standard formula. And they would get a royalty off a major coming in. They would also get reparations because when they come in on their property, they don't they destroy the crops, you know. And but it's a small area, but nonetheless, they have to have roads that come in and out. I don't think people think about this very a lot. When when you buy a piece of land, you have the air rights, right? Air rights. Yes. So you can sell what's above you. Yes. You can. You have your actual land, and then now we're talking about selling what's below us, and even parsing it off like oh you you're you not can even selling leasing. leasing leasing so you're not even give, you're not even getting rid of it forever so you're leasing and i'm going to lease you until 5000 feet and then who who wants to give me more money and lease from 5 to 10 is the lease I love if you it. go all the way to china isn't that what they used to yeah, say that's true. Dig, so is that true like as far as you can go down yeah. the way it usually reads mm -hmm. if you have all all the mineral rights underneath it it's stipulated in, in a lease contract from the surface to the core of the earth. That's how they phrase Okay, it. so not to change. Yes, okay. but here's where it's applicable locally. We had a, a, a attorney general that was very vocal against the, the fracking mm -hmm. and the new drilling technologies where they actually know that the oil and gas is already there in mm -hmm. place. It's a function, it's a mining, it's an extraction process, not a wildcatting process. Not a discovery process. And what happened in Pennsylvania, Susquehanna County, um, for one, uh, Chevron was, a, I think, a major player in Susquehanna County and Wayne County, and it was very close to the border of New York State. And of course, in a very desolate areas, and they would already had the infrastructure in Pennsylvania, which would require them just laying the landline, drilling, and then just laying the lines. Once they lay the lines, it's underneath, it's buried. And then the state collects the revenue. The people, the landowners, and if you happen to be a landowner in that area, you would get paid a lease bonus. You would get a certain amount of money that you can negotiate, and you'd get an override in perpetuity into that, and you could sell that override, or you can collect it in perpetuity until there's no longer any hydrocarbon. I think everyone out there that owns land right now is thinking, <laughs> so how do, how do I, they're going to see people digging for their oil. So well, what, what would the, be like a sign, like if I owned 50 acres right. in Monticello, New York, how right. would I know, what would I look for? How would I approach? How do I know that I have oil? Well, <laughs> what the majors do in, in the sense of, of uh, 
I'm going to use Chevron because they were more majors, than, meaning major gas. When I say majors, um, referring to oil and gas. So Shell, it's Shell, Exxon, BP, Exxon, right. um, and, and Chevron are really the four. It used to be seven, and they consolidated. There's four, and then underneath is another thirty, but but usually the top four um, are the, really the predominant by by a long shot. But they run what they call seismic, and seismic is actually they put dynamite beneath the, they dig a hole and they put dynamite and they get these waves and they're able to determine, they call, get what's called a log and they can ascertain off the log the probability of success. The other way they do it, once they drill a well, it's almost like putting a periscope down beneath the, the floor mm. and they get to see a whole lot. Now they have technology that they didn't have before, which is 3D seismic instead of 2D. So 3D seismic, you get to see all the way around. And the more wells that are drilled, the more data points that you have. Okay. And there have been enough wells that have been drilled in northern Pennsylvania where the people, and they own the rights to the seismic, or they lease the rights to the seismic. So you as an individual landowner may know what's going on. The information that they produce oil and gas is public knowledge. Okay. Usually it takes 90, 60 to 90 days in arrears, but you can go and get that. And that usually precipitates what you know the value is in, in the area that they may want to drill. So if your neighbor is having a test done, you'll mm. be able to get those results and see if that kind of trickles over to your property. It's catch 22. But how because, often is so, this so really happening? Are they drilling well, little wells? Are they they're big? not in are New York. Little? Are they so Lee Zeldin, who ran for governor, mm -hmm. um, uh, the previous administration, Cuomo, said absolutely no drilling in fracking. Mm -hmm. in, uh, there's drilling uh, for natural gas by Buffalo and Elmira and, and that area, uh, upstate New York, but absolutely banned fracking and so forth. Um, and there was a lot of people environmentally uh, that didn't think it was good practice. But um, I will say that uh, for the folks that have the opportunity, they already know, they already have data on the two miles away. Shale is omnipresent. Got it. it for my, uh, as opposed to shale is a stone, right? It, it is, and it's, it's mining because if you drill and you drill down to a pool of hydrocarbon, you only get that pool. But shale goes for hundreds of miles. The difference is the variance, the thickness of the shale, and depending on the basin, also may interpret what the quality that you're extracting. But so the more information you have, which is public information. At some point, it's great revenue for the state. It keeps us energy independent. Natural gas is as clean as we can. I'm all for green energy. Green energy is very important. It's important. I have a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old. I'm going to get in trouble for the 14. I have a 15-year-old and I have a 9-year-old, who Eric knows. And um, I will tell you, I want a greener, safer environment for, for my children, for my grandchildren, and for, junior, uh, for future generations. Great grandchildren. What I don't want is I don't want billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars being spent that have, from the inception, they have no sense of reality um, and the pro formas don't match up, it cannot be accomplished. And so you really, this is a process that, that's gonna take a generation. And what this administration is, is trying to do, in my opinion, uh, and a lot of energy folks is, and, and the majors are making great strides in towards green energy because they see hydro and they see other opportunities, but it can't happen on the timeline and the amount of money. They're just throwing money at it, thinking that money can solve it. It's not that easy. It needs to be perfected such that we don't waste it. And when we do have the technology and they go up to Congress and they ask for an allocation of $500 billion because we can really have an impact on the environment, we don't want people to say, well, I wish, gonna, we're, we're gonna, though. We're not, I wish they could do it without I wish they could do it like just hold something up you to the ground. You can't shovel, and, like, but it will take us no, no, to the no, rest no. of the time. I'm, I'm talking about sound waves. I have an idea in my head, but I'm not uh, you know, a scientist. But I wish, I wish they didn't have, because they basically, if you had property that had oil on it, you would have to drill, drill on your property, which would suck. It would, but you'd be, you'd, be, <laughs> you'd be surprised when they're completed and the cleanup 
and that they fence it. They have to fence it in, obviously. But you'd be a lot of it's on ranches, so mm. it's not it's not up here where you're on a quarter of an acre. Or half so an you're acre. not coming to my house no, in Franklin Lakes and, <laughs> it's and, and moving the swan no, aside. No, it's it's like, really it's, it's so rural. It's usually ranches it. or farmland, right? And they actually they have one path road that, to pick up the oil or to service it if they need to. And you'd be surprised. And they put big trees around it. And they actually make it, you know, they put nice lipstick on the pig. So they put lipstick on the pig. But I will say this. Here, here's what, where, you know, fundamentals in business are fundamentals, right? Mm. There are things that are across the board. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, and listening to some older folks and, and through my own experience and taking from energy, because we could be talking about a widget, energy, or, or, mm -hmm. or real estate, is... Don't get married to any particular project. There are very few projects, unless you're on 57th and 5th, and or you're at the plaza, or you're at you know in the middle of the Champs Elysees, or wherever you may be. Unless it's so unique that it can't be replicated, look at the opportunity and don't be afraid. If you don't have the metrics, have the discipline to have the metrics and go forward. But always remember, there's just there's another deal around the table. There's another mm -hmm. opportunity coming. And when you're younger, you tend to be more aggressive because you want it sooner than later. True. But that's when you start getting s mistakes, right? So when you have success early, you're a little bit, you become a little bit laxed because you say, look, I'm a genius, I, you know, which is not the case for anybody. Every, some of the most brilliant minds in real estate, in energy, in every facet, have gone bankrupt once or twice or have had their, um, I haven't had that experience, but there are people that are really, really smart that you know the market turned on them. So I would always say there are certain disciplines in real estate that are across the board. And real estate is one of those those deals that there's always another opportunity. And Eric, I think you were asking me, you know, we were just having a casual conversation one day and, and saying and suggesting, you know, what kind of deals do you look at in energy, right? And I said, look, there are deals, I don't primarily look at deals per day, but they come across my desk in different forms and fashion. There are some folks that need earnest money because they don't have the requisite earnest money in order to put the contract or put a contract a building under contract so they can get the financing. Nobody's gonna write a commitment or give financing unless you provide a contract, right? Or some people, um, for whatever reason, they're going through a divorce, it's probate or what have you. You don't wanna take advantage of anybody, but they're willing to sell a note um, that they have an under, a bank may do it if they're not doing well, or they, they're carrying a note on a piece of property and they'll sell it at a discount uh -huh. and you get an appraisal and you want to make sure the appraisal fits the metrics that make you feel comfortable. And by the way, getting back to the metrics, look, everybody has their own set. It depends on your expectation or IRR, what, what the opportunity cost is, this investment versus another one, whether it's a 1031 exchange, whether you have a tax deficit or a tax loss that you can use carry forward, or whatever the case may be. So what may be good investment for me may not be good for you. Now, there are, occasionally there's some properties that are discounted that'd be good for all of us, and sure, we're, all, yeah. we're all vying for the same property. So I, I think it's really fascinating how you started out in New York, saw an opportunity, I did. went somewhere else, went from traditional real estate thoughts to now flipping and then learning about mineral rights and now you're into energy deals and all kinds of other and stuff. And I'm so assuming the, the things that you, the, the um, properties that you brought, you bought in Houston, yes. then they approached you about the mineral rights. Is that, is that how you no, sort they of were got mutually into it? No, it was actually mutually exclusive. Um, I actually had an opportunity to invest in some producing properties. I had oh, the premier okay. appraisal group, kind of like a CBRE for oil and gas, mm -hmm. and they would do an appraisal. It was producing property, so it wasn't a function of whether you're going to find hydrocarbon or not. Oh, and so then you just decided, I'm going to go out and I become like J.R. Ewing. Well, no, I bought it based <laughs> on cer certain metrics, and those metrics worked for me. I had an appraisal, mm -hmm. and but there are variables, right? You mm -hmm. can hedge in your price and lock in your price, which we, so I you woke up one morning and said, I'm going to look at oil. Oil. No, I, oh, start, no, I started very, property with very oil. passively, very passively. I was a, a passive investor with a net profit interest and mm -hmm. shielded it with, with liability. Net profit interest in a piece of property that had an oil. oil. No, no, just oil and gas. Okay. Uh, but but, okay. Um, but that's what taught you about how 
I use certain principles that I Got learned it. in oil and gas. Transferable skills. Transferable well, just principles. business skills. Right. What makes sense mm -hmm. in, in terms of an appraisal, right? So an income producing oil and gas, while it has its own vernacular, while it has its own variables like price deck change and so forth, so does a neighborhood because mm -hmm. they could put a new school in, they could put a new mall in, they could put a water slide in that may increase or decrease. Sure, the or they could put in you know, mm -hmm. a waste facility, which you don't want to live next to a waste facility because of the, the odor or the smell, right? So, so it really kind of depends. There's always opportunity. As far as the real estate, it was just a really unique time. Um, and it was an amazing opportunity to learn from people that were a lot smarter than I was that knew the business for 20, 25 years. And you also have to know the area. You also have to know, you know, LA is different than New York, Chicago, Houston. It's sure. got its own Every pulse, area. right? And which way the trends are moving. So I think that's also paramount in, in So based on all of these experiences, because yes. you seem to be in, in so many different, five or six different facets right. of real estate, what would your top four um, must-dos be to someone starting out in the real estate world? Eric loves his top, yeah. top four. I'm going to answer that backwards a little bit. <laughs> and I hope Eric will excuse me because I'm going to start with number one. Number one is what not to do. Don't chase a deal. Don't chase a deal. That's not something, and I guess you can. That's, you, a, that's you a top can, four. Yeah. Don't, okay. don't, yeah, don't, don't chase, chase a deal. deal. There's always another one. Um, and, and if you're in a partnership, make sure that you're protected and make sure that you're with the right partner. Uh, a bad partner is there's there's no uh, if you have a partner that's you're not in sync with um, it's a tar Just like baby. A bad marriage. That, it, it's it's difficult and it's time consuming. There's a lot of brain damage and it's frustrating, right? Um, we've all had it. Anybody in the business has had it one way or the other. If they're being candid, I feel um, like you have to experience a bad partner to I, know what a bad. You know partner what? That's is. a great point, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So so and, a matter of fact, to your point number two, um, if I may. I've actually learned more from deals with, that didn't come out so great or to pro forma. I may not have lost money, but I had other opportunities that I for uh, I I for forgoed or forwent uh, whatever mm -hmm. the correct vernacular is. Uh, I didn't I didn't participate. However, I passed up. I passed up. Thank yeah. you very much for that tough SAT word. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure my it eighth grade teacher, my eighth grade teacher, my, my daughters will watch it and be like, mm -hmm. Dad, really? Mm -hmm. But but that being said, um, you know, it, it you learn sometimes more from from the things that don't go the way you think they're gonna go than it seems too easy when you buy a piece of property for a dollar and sell it for ten. You feel like you're a genius and don't get sucked into that trap. Every property is unique. Location, 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 of course, is the moniker of real estate, but there are other variables too. Which way the city is trending? Which way the, are there new facilities, new companies moving? Are they contemplating? We see that in Texas today and Florida seeing uh, a lot of companies. You're seeing a lot of tech companies. Tesla moved to Austin, Texas, hmm. because there's no state income tax hmm. or what have you. Now, for me, there's nothing like New Jersey. New Jersey is is home to me. It's got its own rhythm that I understand. It's dynamic. You have the best of both worlds. You're on the cusp of Gotham, but yet you're you're able to raise your kids with a front lawn and a backyard. It is really a special place. And you know, there are people that have different uh, perceptions in New Jersey, and 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 you know, a lot have great a great viewpoint, and they want to learn more. But I will say, you know, the pulse of being in New Jersey and the opportunities and the amount of companies um, over a period of time, if you have the staying power, if something happens, um, will always rebound because it's so unique, this area, that it's really second to none that I've known and that I've come so, across. So hold on, would that be your number three, move to New Jersey? <laughs> I, I'm a New Jersey resident, and I went to high school in New Jersey. Okay, I pr I'm a proud New Jersey resident, and I love being here. Uh, look, the hospitality in Texas was great, and I enjoy it, and I enjoy going back. And I think my wife and my family enjoy going to things like the rodeo that they haven't experienced. But when we come home, we say there's nothing like home, right? So not to be Dorothy, mm -hmm. but um, there's nothing like home. Wow, right? Yeah. So... That that any 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 fourth item that you want to share with us, like what was what was your all right? Give me your worst ever experience in real estate. Number one thing that stands out from you, 
worst ever. Yeah. Okay. I so so I'm gonna so, I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to answer it. It's it's not a complete answer. Um, the worst ones were the ones I pulled out too early, and I made my return, and I didn't see. I would there's a big mm. REIT called Camden Property Trust. It's a twenty billion dollar REIT, and before they became Camden Property Trust. They were a different company, and I was one of the founding investors in that company. And they decided to do an IPO back in about 95, 96. And there was an opportunity for the initial investors to get back money, and it was a, it was a nice return. Um, and knowing it was, in retrospect, knowing it would have been liquid on the market and so forth, that company was was a fraction of the 20, I don't know if it's 15 or 20 billion. So, you know, there are regrets that you have. Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I, there are some deals I wish I would have stayed in, but you, you really can't, you gotta move on. It's kind of like a stock. And if you make your money or you take a loss, you move on to the next and you can't let it, you can't let it drag you down and persuade you, you know, if it hits your metrics and you sure. move on. Uh -huh. So I, I would suggest that would probably be my your biggest worst. regret, but look, I did well in it. Um, I just didn't. I didn't do 10, 20x like other people right. did that stayed in. All right. Well, thank you. And and I what I'm taking away from today is yeah. cash flow. Yes. Know your cash flow. I like that one. Know your area. Yes. Um, don't be afraid to make a mistake and learn from it. Yes. And 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 basically with those principles, you can do anything in real estate. I think so. so. I think and, and the opportunity like you can do anything. In and business. there's opportunities. And I think, if, if I may. People, people should look out beyond just buying the assets, and you know this all too well, Eric and, and Noel, just buying the piece of real estate and selling it. There are yeah. so many other opportunities, whether you're buying the note from the bank because they want to get rid of it. I see that more often than probably actual properties. Mm -hmm. um, but Or if you happen to know a tenant and you know a building that's half filled and you know somebody looking for 30,000 square feet, you make it your business to get on LoopNet or wherever, and you find a half-filled building that fits that criteria, right? And then you buy it. And then you buy it, you and buy then it. you put it. We're working on one right? of those right now. And so. so that's where one and one equals more than two, mm -hmm. right? And that's really, you know, a home run. And, of course, the TI dollars are – TI dollars meaning tenant improvement. And that's a major um, negotiating point between anybody that wants to lease property in a commercial space and so forth. So um, with that being said um, – Anything else? Um, no, I, I, I think that. this is great. I, I appreciate you sharing your principles yep. with us, and we're we're excited about all your success, and we can't wait to hear from you in another couple of years and, and get some more success from you. And we well, love well I, I, I'm a little I'm a little disappointed. It's going to take two years, but folks, <laughs> well, we'll see. If I, if I don't see you for two years, um, it'll be nice to be back sooner than later. Maybe we can hear some cool time. stories. We'll have to talk. There's about some that great stories. Yeah. Um, there's some great stories, and what's amazing about business stories, a lot of real estate stories, is it's actually more fun to read the nonfiction or hear about the nonfiction stories right. than read the fiction stories because they actually happened. And when you read a book about real estate, there's a couple of them, and you, they talk about the AT&T building when it was built. It was the highest per square foot building that was built at the time. It's a pink, kind of a pink building right in Midtown. And you hear about the Trump building when it was built, or mm -hmm. you hear about other, you know, the plaza went through sure. iterations of major players owning the plaza, from, from the Bass Brothers to all the way on to today and, and, the, and the conversion. So, you know, learning those stories is just incredibly interesting. Love to have the opportunity to come back and share something. Definitely. Thank well, you. Thanks this for coming awesome. on board. We loved having you here today. And remember, check us out. Subscribe. We can't wait to see you at our next show. And remember, if you, Thank you. it, you can own it. See yes, you next you time. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.